It is Thursday, the 5th of November, and all the tech appears to be working amazingly. There's usually a mad scramble right at the end when the audio goes down or camera two fails to fire up, but not today. So that obviously means something is going to go massively wrong now. like live on air, just what you want, right? Anywho, until that happens and the whole thing, you know, Typhoon Jesus comes in and trashes a lot of us, it is pouring cats and dogs. There's likely to be an internet failure anytime soon. But until then, I will be answering your questions live on YouTube for at least the next hour. So do reach out in the chat and thank you very much for joining me. My name's John Cadogan. I'm from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap for buyers here in Australia. You can, of course, hit me up on the website for that, but really here to answer your questions. And uh, as usual, I'm humbled by the number of people who have just absolutely busted their asses to be available now and withdrawn from the family life thing oh might be you know a relief to the family let's face it but anyway you're out of that and into this and i thank you very much for your company this evening or you know whatever time it is for you elsewhere in the world and i just thought i'd start off with something you know vestigially interesting today tonight whatever to um amp up a little bit of discussion because i got these fascinating photographs from a dude named Trevor who says, I've heard you may be able to help with the problem I have with Volkswagen. Well, I doubt that because Volkswagen is pretty bad at customer support and I'm only limited in my capacity to help there. But Trevor goes on and says, my partner was driving her 2008 Tiguan doing about 100 k's an hour when a ute pulled out in front of her and she hit it and the airbags didn't deploy. Now, Here's a quick look at said ute, and obviously it is reasonably damaged. She, and Trev goes on and says, which has the result in her having suffered many pseudo-seizures. Volkswagen is saying there wasn't enough structural damage for the airbags to deploy ever, though the car has been written off. Please see attached photos and let me know what you think. Okay, so let us go through that, shall we? Because... That is kind of interesting. Now, let's have a look at the Tiguan as well. Here's a shot of the front, and you can see that uh, this is my favourite kind of Tiguan, which is one that will no longer be circulating on the roads among us. So that's nice, but I'm a little bit sad about the partner's injuries, frankly. And here's a shot of the side, which shows that at least as I see it, the structural performance of the car was pretty strong you know like it did what it's supposed to do it crumpled up and absorbed energy at the front and the passenger uh, compartment is remarkably intact and if you look at it and compare it to the older ute once again you can just see how much amazing damage there is to that ute compared with the tiguan it's it's properly bent at both ends the back windows punched out and the tray has been driven forward into the cabin although i must say that the ute seems to be pretty intact from a passenger compartment point of view as well, even though it's not going to be among us anymore either. And I'm supposing what happened is that the ute just pulled out in front of the Tiguan, which was unable to stop in time, and uh, the ute therefore became a tailgate-first kind of bump stop for the Tiguan. Now, I guess the interesting, the really interesting thing to me out of all of this is that You know, airbags are a bit like chemotherapy to me. They're quite a bad thing, but in the circumstances, they're the best thing we've got. So you have to be absolutely 
on the brink of death. Otherwise, it's kind of irresponsible for the car maker to deploy the airbags. And obviously, I'm not a doctor and I don't know everything there is to know about pseudo seizures, which uh, Trevor says his partner has suffered as a result of this crash. But I did look it up briefly. And according to Dr. Google, who can't always be relied upon for his or her veracity, Pseudo-seizures can either be something that you experience from a head trauma, you know, it can cause that, but it can also be like, um, almost like a post-traumatic stress disorder thing, like a psychological stress kind of reaction. So I don't know if it's fair enough to blame the non-deployment of the airbags on the pseudo-seizures in this case, but it is kind of happy to me that Trevor's partner survived and was substantially uninjured from the point of view of life-threatening injuries. And you have to just appreciate, I get probably once every two months, I get someone writes in and says words to the effect of, and I'm not accusing Trevor of this, but they say words to the effect of, well, I had a crash and I didn't get my airbags. And I kind of go, are your brains intact? And if they go, yeah, same as they ever was, then I kind of go, Well, dude, you didn't need those airbags. And the other thing, obviously, about airbag deployment, right, is that it's a one-shot deal. So if you're in a crash, it's not always the case that you hit something and stop. You know, you can hit something and then you can reduce your speed a little bit by virtue of the, you know, the energy that's absorbed hitting something. But down the track, you know, you could hit something else at speed as well. And that means that you've got to kind of keep your powder dry, in the context of airbag deployment, just in case there's a bigger hit about to come before the scenery properly stops moving for you. And for all of these reasons, and you don't hear me say this very often, but for all of these reasons, I think Volkswagen's done the right thing here. I think the engineers did the right job. And when you look at this damage, it doesn't appear to be as bad as... It doesn't appear to be life-threatening to me because of the integrity of the passenger compartment mainly. And the other thing to remember, of course, is look at how much better the modern vehicle did compared with the older vehicle. And maybe I'm being just a bit unfair there, but I really don't think so. There's been, obviously to me, there's been a great deal more thought put into the structural protection here because you want all that stuff forward of the firewall to crumple in a progressive way and protect the occupants from you know, as much harm as possible in the circumstances. So I think we'd have to give Volkswagen a big tick there and say it's unfortunate about these pseudo-seizures, but it's much worse to suffer a profound traumatic brain injury at the side of the road or die of hypovolemic shock or, you know, collapse because you can't breathe anymore because you've had a bilateral tension pneumothorax at the roadside. So I don't know if you've been in a serious crash like that, but I really would... um, I really would like to know what your experience has been. Do you remember the airbag deployment? Because most people don't. It's done and dusted within literally the blink of an eye and there's so much going on afterwards that, you know, there is no memory of the event in many circumstances. So if you'd like to add something there, I'd really appreciate your view on it. Now, uh, Nathan O'Connor, very generously donating $10 via the live chat there. So thank you, Nathan. I might prioritise your question, seeing as you literally have paid me for an answer. Nathan says, tossing up between Hyundai Venue, i30 and Kona, have I missed something to consider? Well, yeah, I, I think... 
venue is a little bit kind of small and not really that polished. I've been in venue a couple of times now and the hard plastic surfaces, to me, the price seems a little bit high and the finesse and refinement, the quality in that sort of domain seems a little bit low. So I wouldn't be recommending and I don't generally recommend venue to too many people, although, you know, buying a new car is a subjective determination. It's kind of mainly subjective for a lot of people. But in the domain of objectivity, like how is it as a car and how does it compare to others, I'd be sidelining venue and I'd be saying i30 is pretty good and Kona's pretty good. And in fact, they're virtually flip sides of the same coin, i30 and Kona. If you want a little bit of additional ground clearance and you want to sit up just a little bit higher because you've got a bad back or a bung knee or a bad hip or whatever, then yeah, the Kona's a good thing. And in both cases, I'd have to say big tick for the 1.6 turbo petrol engine and the dual clutch transmission. To me, that's a real winner. Although, you know, the two litre engine with the conventional auto is also a viable proposition in either one of those platforms if you're not a proper sort of performance head. So I hope that helps, Nathan. I'd, I'd be saying, you know, you should also look at maybe the Serato. Kia Serato is not bad. And also Mazda 3, just to give you uh, some points of difference, some points of comparison with i30, because it's always nice to make a short list of about three vehicles and then narrow it down from there. And it's always nice to look at what other brands are doing too, because something might catch you here or there, and that's a valuable exercise one way or the other, mate. So good luck with that. And uh, if you need any more help, just fill in the contact form at my website, autoexpert.com.au. Ask me a question, whatever, and I will try to get back to you as quickly as I can. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I, do, I do hate it when there's no cough suppression button. As there is in radio, you could play a stab and just professionally get over this kind of thing. How dare I? Anyway, where were we? Ben Carlton here now. Had a thought the other day in regards to passive safety tech like uh, autonomous emergency braking. How would you ever know if it's working properly? <laughs> I do hate that. Yeah, um... That's a very good question. It's like airbags, isn't it? How do you test them, mate? Uh, ben goes on and says, would hate to be in a situation where it's needed and it's faulty. Well, there is a power on self-test. You know, the car does that when it boots up. You know, you press start, car boots up just like a computer, and it runs through this self-testing protocol to make sure that it is energizing these systems, particularly systems of that nature. So if your airbags can be identified by the computer as not responding or the AEB system not responding, your stability control, systems like that, you will get a red or an orange warning light on the dash. The convention there, of course, is that orange means sort of danger, something to be concerned about, and red means, holy shit, Batman, pay attention, shut the engine down, this is serious. That's the distinction between those two. Now, defective AEB is never going to kill you, you know, like off the bat in its own right. It might involve you dying if you've got a defective AEB system with an orange warning light and you don't pay attention and you fail to brake because, I don't know, the world's worst truck has just stopped in front of you and you plough into it at 80 or something. But 
these orange warning lights, just take it to the dealership, mate. It says a system's faulty. They can fault find it for you and check it out. And, you know, it's not that big a deal, really, I don't think. And the fault, the, the fault uh, proclivity of these systems is quite low because, you know, they're just lunching off things like the camera system or the radar unit that the adaptive cruise uses. So if your adaptive cruise is working, that aspect of the hardware is functional and, you know, it uses AEB, it uses your uh, ABS and other modules of that nature. So if you notice the ABS working, there's a good uh, chance that all of your other emergency braking systems are working as well. So you can do a little bit of uh, inference type testing of these systems in that way. If your adaptive cruise stops working, it's almost certain that your uh, autonomous emergency braking won't work as well. But you'll have warning lights up on the dash before you reach that determination. So let's talk to Noel Thorley now, who says, continuing from my last comment, whatever that was, what John is saying is good information to help answer an assuage. I love that word, assuage, 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 tomato, tomato. The what if to instruct on the minimal, on the minimal next time risk. Hope that helps. I hope it does too, Noel. Anyway, this is the problem with filleting these comments uh, as they roll in. Jake Booker now. Hi, John. Love your program. You've mentioned in previous videos about the advantages of periodic and sustained highway driving. Could you explain in a bit more detail about why it's beneficial? Yeah, sure. No problem. If you've got a diesel, a bit of sustained highway driving is the kind of driving the computer system needs to invoke a regeneration of the diesel particulate filter. And that just means it turns it into a furnace by injecting more fuel and burns the shit out of the trapped particles, which would otherwise be harmful to human health. It just burns them to smithereens and then they get ejected as soot and not that sort of chemically active soot that's really dangerous. See those PM 2.5 particles that come out of exhaust, they get coated in, you know, cyclohexane and other sort of aromatic and dangerous hydrocarbon derivative kind of chemicals. And they go straight into your lungs and they they just fuck with your DNA, basically, and gives you cancer down the track, you know. So that's one reason to do that highway driving. But all cars benefit from highway driving. And here's why. If you only do short trips and lots of cold starts, then the moving parts like the pistons and the bores and all of that other stuff, they don't expand to their design dimensions because they're too cold, obviously, and metal expands as it heats up. And that means that there's a great deal of blow-by, which is combustion byproducts, mainly unburned hydrocarbons and water, getting into your oil continuously if you only do this short stop-start running. Okay, so your engine gets polluted with soot, unburned hydrocarbons and water because when you burn a hydrocarbon, the combustion byproducts are water and CO2. And the water is produced as steam, which is a colourless gas. But when it gets into your sump and you shut the engine down and everything gets cool, it condenses out as sort of glorified rain that runs down the side of the crankcase and gets into your oil. And none of that is good. Diluting your oil with unburned hydrocarbons, not good, all right? Because it, all of that stuff damages the lubricity of your sump oil. 
So when you get out on the highway and you reach that sustained, lean-burning, high-operating temperature that typifies highway running, what happens is that all of these contaminants just evaporate off and get sort of hoyed out the exhaust, ultimately, and that purifies your oil. And there's a huge benefit to that. It sort of decarbonizes everything and it gets rid of all the impurities in the oil and things are much cleaner down there, which, let's face it, that's what we want. So I hope that helps, mate. Now, let us talk to Adriano Paolini. Hi, John. I really enjoyed your channel and especially the new live streams. I'm looking at purchasing Kia Cerato GT shortly. I have hit you up on the website for that. Thoughts on the Kia? Yeah, Cerato GT is a really good sort of balance between a car you can drive every day and a car that you can enjoy the performance of. Because I love some performance cars. Like, I love that i30N. Like, I want it carnally. It's a fantasy car, right? But I think I would rather live with, like, an i30N line or a Serato GT if I also just had to drive it to the shops and drop the kids off at school or do all of that, you know, domestic running around. Because performance cars do tend to be a little bit hard to live with. And the hard to live with thing can often eclipse the very few times that you get out and actually have a crack in the performance car that you paid 10 grand extra for. So for all these reasons, you know, a car like a Serato GT and Kia does an excellent job with its local suspension tuning. So it's quite a good dynamics platform as well. When you combine that sort of uh, pokey drivetrain, that 1.6 turbo drivetrain with a DSG with some good local suspension tune, which is optimized for our roads, you get a really good package at a really good price. And it is also um, supported well by Kia. Like Kia does good customer support. So you get a long warranty and you don't really have to worry about will they support me on this or won't they support me on that? Because unless you're being an unreasonable turd, they are going to support you on it, right? So if you damage your car and say, well, I demand that you fix this under warranty, they'll probably go in the nicest possible way, jam it, buddy, that's your problem. But if you actually have a problem that stems from a manufacturing defect or a premature uh, reliability sort of failure, then they're going to look after you. And that is real peace of mind that you don't get with other brands. So yeah, Serato GT, absolutely approved, mate. Go, go right ahead. Well done. Um, Michelle Walters here. Thank you for watching, Michelle. Don't get too many chicks on the program. So I do appreciate your participation. I'd hate to think that it was just a boys club. Uh, Michelle says, hi, John. Firstly, I really enjoy your channel. I always, when a woman says that to me, I always feel like saying, I'm so sorry about all those terrible things I've said. But anyway, I'm glad you enjoy it, Michelle. She says, even the physics lessons. Yes. And let's not forget, physics is everything when you think about it, right? I would like to, I'd like you to discuss the potential future of EVs in Shitsville. Where do you think we'll be in 2030? Cheers. Oh, and this is from Pete Walters. Why is Pete Walters signed in as Michelle Walters and misrepresenting himself as a chick and thereby exacting a, an apology from me about my crude comments and I'm withdrawn without reservation? Pete, don't log in as your wife. Jesus. EVs in Australia. In every market in the world, 
okay, the only time that EVs have kicked a real goal is when the government gets behind them and makes them financially attractive, such as in Norway, okay? Like in Norway, they took off their equivalent of the GST and they took off the road tolls and gave the cars free parking in um, in the city, in Oslo. And so you got all these benefits if you owned an EV. And an e-Golf, for example, was cheaper than the conventional combustion Golf, right? So of course people bought them because it made sense. They got a premium, uh, you know, they got, they got it at the right price and they got these other benefits. So it really was financially attractive to do that, yeah? Australia, not so much. I mean, we've got a Prime Minister who carries a lump of coal into Parliament and goes, look how good this stuff is. I've just found out about coal. Like, come on, how much behind, how much more behind the times is it possible to be and still have electrical activity going on between your ears? It, it, it just, words fail me on that, the government direction on that. And when I drive around my suburb here in northern uh, Sydney, I look around at all of the roofs that have solar arrays on them, okay? So in my view, the electorate has kind of spoken about its desire to go green, Okay. But I don't see the government reinforcing that. So this is a major hurdle to the early adoption of EVs. And I've been driving for about, I don't know, five months now, the new uh, Kona electric. And it's fun to drive. It's fun to drive around the city. Like it gets up and goes, like it really gets up and goes off the mark. And every time I say that, someone goes, oh, it's only seven seconds to 100. You're kidding yourself. It's really fast to 50. It is. Just Take it from somebody who's driven all kinds of cars. That thing rocks to 50. It really gets up and goes. And it's deceptive, you know? So that's uplifting, right? And I'm a fan of driving that car. Although it does have some little quirks, like it's got that modal separation between bump and, um, and uh, roll because of the big weight of the battery that they put underneath it. I can talk about that if you're interested. But just as an example, that car is like, the best part of 65 grand drive away, something like that. And the internal combustion equivalent is like 45 grand. So you're paying 20 or 25. I did the math some time ago, but it's a number like that. You're paying 20 to $25,000 more for the equivalent Kona Highlander in electric. All right. And until that gap is severely constrained, until you can bring it back to a few thousand bucks, for example, I don't see, I don't see electric cars taking off except in a couple of circumstances. And one of those would be if Greenpeace operates a fleet, okay? They'd be buying cars like that. And there might be some government bodies who can afford to waste taxpayers' funds in this way by showing their, by playing the green card, by wearing their green heart on their sleeve, as it were, okay? But for the rest of us who have to actually spend money wisely and, and, and do these things in a considered way, who are receptive to the idea of electric cars, there's no economic rational case for them at this point. And that is just such a major hurdle to the adoption. So when you look at hybrids, for example, one in 35 cars currently being sold in Australia is a hybrid. 
and it's taken about 25 years to get there. So that's roughly 3% of the sales volume in about 30 years. So if there's a miracle and electric cars do twice as well as hybrid cars have done in the same sort of period of time, then not so much 2030, but by 2040, we might be looking at 6% of cars being sold electric, maybe 10 if we're incredibly lucky, unless there's some sort of profound change in the regulatory apparatus that makes these vehicles more attractive. So that is kind of the limitation here. And I suggest that the private citizens like you and me who might go out and buy electric cars at the moment as early adopters, they're doing that for entirely subjective slash irrational reasons. There's a couple of rational cases. There's like um, clean air for our cities. That's a thing. I can get behind that at 100 miles an hour. I could also get behind energy security for Australia. If you wanted to reduce our fuel consumption and do your bit to reduce our fuel consumption and be less dependent on the supply of liquid fuels from overseas, then absolutely buy yourself an electric car. If you want to pollute the sky in a big city less by virtue of uh, no tailpipe emissions, absolutely buy an electric car. But as for it being a properly green or economically rational uh, thing to do at this point, I really don't see anybody winning the argument on that. And I'd like to, you know, I'd like to be more positive about the whole thing than that. But the facts are so inconvenient as I see them. But I'd be interested in hearing from you if you think I'm completely wrong on that. I'm just not an evangelist. I, the facts get in the way from... Uh, they they prevent me from being this EV evangelist that many people expect me to be. Now, I just want to do a quick question that I've pre-selected from a dude named Rod, who says, thanks for the YouTube channel and articles on the website. I'm looking at buying a new diesel SUV for the family, and we're looking at running costs. I would like your view on the impact of using ordinary diesel instead of premium diesel, specifically in regards to warranty. I've reread your 2017 article regarding the various ways fuel companies promote effectively the same fluid, but it is the warranty aspect that interests me. For example, a Suzuki Swift Sport requires 95 Ron gasoline, petrol, so running it on 91 Ron petrol could influence warranty. Given all the diesel specs I have read they all simply say diesel, then is there any warranty obligation to go the premium diesel way? Thanks for your time in responding to this topic. Well, that's a pleasure, Rod. That's a great question, and thanks for asking it. The difference between using the wrong petrol, gasoline, and using the wrong diesel, hypothetically, is this. The octane rating of fuel, petrol, really matters. So if your manufacturer says 95 RON minimum and you use E10 or 91, then that fuel can detonate early, you know, and burn in an uncontrolled way that the manufacturer doesn't want it to go and it can damage your engine, okay? So you can absolutely damage your engine if you use an octane rating that is too low. And this pertains to petrol, okay? Premium gasoline premium petrol does not relate the same way as premium diesel. There's no octane rating for diesel, but there is a thing called the cetane rating. All right. Now, the cetane rating for premium diesel is exactly the same as the cetane rating for ordinary diesel. And that means as far as your engine's concerned, during the combustion event, 
premium diesel and ordinary diesel are the same thing. They burn the same. They release the same energy. They respond to the compression event in the same way and the injection event. There's no difference there. Premium, in the context of diesel, relates to allegations by the manufacturer of that fuel relating to an additive package and specifically premium diesel does not foam up as much on filling up your tank like that matters and it's got an allegedly superior additive package and the additive package is allegedly there to do an allegedly better job allegedly cleaning your engine whatever that means okay so I'm not seeing it in other words, the biggest dirty job in relation to engines is, uh, diesel engines in particular, is gumming up the inlet air pathway, the inlet manifold, the inlet ports, and the space past the inlet valves. They often get gummed up with an oily carbonized residue, okay? And the reason the premium diesel can't help clean that is because the fuel is injected directly into the cylinder after the valves are closed, and therefore... None of that allegedly superior additive package can have a hope in hell of cleaning diesel's potentially dirtiest problem, which is the atherosclerosis of the inlet tract, okay? So I think premium diesel is a complete waste of money. Your engine will not run any better on it, although you could have confirmation bias in your brain and go, oh yeah, that oh, that feels much better, much smoother. <laughs> I've seen lots of people do that. And they're kidding themselves. It's absolutely not the way that diesel works. It burns exactly the same. It makes exactly the same power. It's the same stuff from a combustion point of view. It's There's no difference, okay? So from a warranty point of view, it's all the same. You know, if you run premium diesel or diesel in an engine designed for diesel, you are running exactly the right fuel. And this cannot be the black hole at which uh, about which your warranty dispute orbits it simply cannot because that's not how diesel the premium diesel works right it just doesn't rock that way now let us get back to some more of this chat from you which just floods in like i don't know something then if i was writing a script i'd have a beautiful simile or metaphor made up for that but it's just flooding in dude um Spencer Howard says, John, BP purports that their premium diesel has a higher cetane rating than regular. Well, do they? I wonder, therefore, if a modern diesel engine is equipped to uh, re-time its injection strategy to cope with that. I really wonder about that. Not so sure. I'm uh, In any case, all diesel engines in Australia are completely compatible with running on the base model diesel and if if bp's premium diesel has a better cetane rating and i've no reason to believe that that's not true spencer if you've just looked it up it's been quite a while since i did the research on that and maybe that is the case then i would want to know exactly what difference that makes from a combustion point of view because for example, if you run 95 in an engine designed to run 91, you will get a t the tiniest amount of additional power, okay? And the tiniest economy benefit, but in no way do these benefits offset the additional price of the fuel. So I'd strongly suggest that we're looking at a similar kind of phenomenon there when it comes to the premium diesel, right? Because there is no magic pill of fuel that 
just goes into your engine and we use a better cetane rating and that'll work better. The engine has to be designed around the minimum octane rating or cetane rating to take advantage of that fundamentally. And unless it is, then you're kind of kidding yourself and wasting money by using it. But that was a very good pickup. So thank you very much, Spencer. Now, uh, Chisel 83, Chiz. Jeez, very good at being first, second or third in some of my pre-recorded uploads to the old Chiz. Um, Chiz has got a very valuable contribution to the show. He says, Georgie Parker is getting old but would still bang. I guess that's true. I haven't looked at Georgie Parker recently, but I suppose she would still bang, and I hope she is, because, you know, that generally makes one feel reasonably good, doesn't it? Provided you're doing it the right way, like responsibly. Thanks a lot, Cheers, for bringing the tone of the whole show right up, mate. Well done. Paul C. now says, diesel fuel filters... 100 bucks, air filters are 45 bucks, oil is 120 bucks, petrol's 15 bucks, petrol 15 bucks, oil filter 50 bucks, oil and service is required every 10,000 K. No DPF, no fuel rail, no injector pump to fail. Diesels are a fail. Well, don't agree. I don't agree, Paul. Diesels are not a fail. They, they sell in uh, remarkable quantities for starters and they're 20% more fuel efficient and they make substantially more power at lower RPM. So if we just add up the cost of all of that stuff that you just detailed, like 145, uh, 120 bucks, so that's 265 and then the petrol filter is, sorry, yeah, so 265 bucks is the total there. If you just spent 65,000 bucks on a vehicle, dude, do you really care if it costs 265 bucks once every 12 months or 15,000 Ks, which is the average service interval on a modern diesel, particularly if you are saving 20% on the fuel every time your car is out there turning and burning? I know I don't. So there's that. I mean, you can say something's a fail, but what you're really saying is you're disinclined to buy one, not that it's a fail, because clearly if it was a fail, they wouldn't be selling in the incredible volumes they sell. And P.S. in Australia, we drink 20 billion litres of petrol, that's gasoline, Erica, and 10 billion litres of diesel, roughly, every year. So that's a hell of a lot of failing. I'd suggest much of that is for the heavy transport sector, but still 10 billion and 20 billion. It's like one third diesel dude. Mark McGiven now says, so you go to a third party to have your car serviced during a warranty period, Kia seven years, and later on a problem arises. You're told by garage, it's a warranty issue. Kia says it's a bad service issue. Yeah, this is the dice you roll, I suppose. If you're in a position where Kia says to you, or a car company says to you, there's been a problem with servicing your car poorly, then you've got to sort that out. But ultimately, someone carries the can for consumer law complaints. And they can't just play past the parcel, right? It's attributable to somebody. And the question is how hard you've got to fight to get that across the line. And in my experience, you know, Kia is pretty good at customer support. Not perfect, but pretty good. I do speak to people uh, frequently enough who've had a bad experience at a Kia dealership. And quite often what happens when I intervene with them, if I pass their matter on to head office, they are quite motivated to 
they're not pushovers, but they're quite motivated to act in the case of legitimate complaints, all right? And they often err on the side of caution when it comes to giving the consumer the benefit of the doubt. What I'm saying is they could probably say no a little bit more often and get away with it, but in practice, Kia is pretty good. They're up there with Hyundai, Toyota, and Subaru, which would be, the and Lexus, the top four when it comes to customer support, at least in my experience in Australia. So there's that. Um, Let's keep going with some of this chat now because it is just flooding in uh, endlessly. Wayne Jackson now. There's a worrying trend today of people using their real names on YouTube. I thought this was a breach of the code of ethics. Any code of conduct, whatever. Diesel fuel filter replacement would be more like 50,000 kilometres. I guess it depends on operating conditions, but certainly it's in the service schedule and you just do it when it's required. I wouldn't shirk on doing the old fuel filter replacement, though, because of the nature of the complexity of the high-pressure fuel delivery system in common rail diesel engines, right? So you've got these cam type pumps at the high pressure end that pump up the uh, fuel pressure to something like uh, 1.8 or um, or 2 1.8 or 2000 bar like 2000 atmospheres something like that 1800 to 2000 atmospheres anyway it's brain bending pressure in order to deliver the controlled precision required by the piezoelectric uh, injectors and the environment in which they operate, which is quite demanding. So any impurities that get into those pumps tend to spoil the crap out of the precision faces and then whatever uh, swarf is created, the microabrasion particles created by that that flow down the fuel delivery lines to the individual injectors typically kills them as well. And you're quite often looking at a repair bill that can cost you more than $10,000. So in that context, you know, I'd be erring on the side of caution, especially, you know, if you operate your vehicle in harsh conditions like a lot of dust and things of that nature, dodgy outback fuel um, sellers that might have, you know, less than ideal conditions for the delivery of that fuel into your tank, I'd be erring on the side of caution when it comes to replacing those filters and maybe doing it a little bit early. But I take your point. You don't have to replace the, the fuel filters all the time. You just kind of have to do what the service schedule says, you know. Um, Gear Spider. Now, this is more like it. Gear Spider is more of an authentic YouTube name. So well done there, Gear Spider. G'day, John. Must be an Aussie. And I always wonder about that, you know, like these people from other countries, like the Japanese or the Chinese or something, who think, I will come to Australia and contribute, you know, and then they go and they, they learn English and they learn it diligently. They've got like, you know, they've got like a pad and a pen and they write down the expressions and they practice in the shower saying the words and they've got it all down pat. Good morning, how are you? And they get to they get to Australia, and the first thing they hear when they step through customs is, "Hey, mate, here you going?" And I suppose some of them must think in the moment, "Oh my God, have I been learning the wrong language?" I mean, hasn't that got to be how it is? Anyway, Gear Spider says, "Love to hear your opinion of the DPF filter debacle in some modern diesels, and is it over?" Do they think calling it a filter puts the onus on the owner to replace at huge expense? Okay, DPF reliability is a complex issue, okay? And much of the problem is about the poor integration, like the poor R&D 
that's been done to comply with these regulations. It's like, oh, we'll just stick a DPF in there and she'll be right, mate. The, the problem is that you have to engineer in reliability. This is a device that operates in a very demanding environment, like it is subjected to high energy, hot exhaust gas flow right? And it has to be durable for hundreds of thousands of kilometers, right? Ideally, provided the owner goes and does a bit of highway driving to get his regen on. So the other problem here is that when a DPF fails, right, it's often symptomatic of a problem elsewhere in the system. So the DPF might have failed, but if you just replace the DPF and don't solve the problem, which is elsewhere, then all that's going to happen is your brand new DPF is going to fail. And dealerships, frankly, are very bad at diagnosis often enough. So what happens, right, is that the dealer goes, ah, defective DPF, we've changed it out, you're good to go, which is like flat out BS, okay? It's just BS. Here's an example, all right? When you've got a turbocharged diesel engine, if you go downstream from the turbocharger, the inlet tract is pressurized, all right? And there's a thing called a MAF sensor, which is a mass airflow sensor. It weighs the air on the way into the engine. So the engine knows how much air is going in and therefore it knows how much fuel it needs to burn efficiently, right? The MAF sensor. If you get the tiniest puncture in that region of one of those rubber hoses that delivers the air into the inlet manifold, then the MAF sensor reads the air and some of it is lost. So the engine thinks more air is going into it than is actually getting into it. It delivers the fuel that the MAF sensor tells it to deliver. So it continually runs rich, all right? And that can kill your DPF. And unless the diagnosis of the defect in that pipe is made, right, the DPF is just going to keep going poopy in its trousers. That's just how it is. So dealerships really have to change the way they do business with diagnosis when it comes to these things apart from anything else like the Subaru diesel is famous for fracturing that pipe at I don't know 80,000 k's right which is why I know about this problem and you can buy uh, tougher inlet delivery hoses now with more silicon in them or something and they just basically sideline that problem you can buy them aftermarket right but this problem happens often enough. The DPF gets replaced. It shits itself again. They replace it again. And you end up in this Groundhog Day cycle because curing the symptom is not the same thing as curing the problem. But I take a little bit of heart from my experiences with Hyundai Kia diesels. They've been quite reliable in my experience. And I've got a twenty late 2018, early 2019 Santa Fe in the driveway just out there. And... I've driven it a lot and I don't get out on the highway in it often as much as I would like to and I've never had a DPF problem. And I was talking to one of the tech guys over there and he just said, yeah, well, they're just good at passive regeneration. They've engineered that in. And I am not saying if you own a Hyundai, don't bother with the highway driving. Do bother with the highway driving, all right? But what I'm saying is there's a better R&D job being done and it is possible to make these systems reliable, okay? And obviously the car industry does learn, in some cases slowly, by its mistakes, from its mistakes, right? So 
I would expect the reliability of DPFs to improve incrementally as models go on, right? The first ones will always be the worst, which is why I'm so twitchy about adopting new technology, right? Like I'd be very, very twitchy about buying one of those first generation Mazda Skyactiv-X X engines with a homogeneous compression charge ignition thingo going on, right? I'd be waiting for three generations of that until they've solved all of the problems. And because I just don't want to be a lab rat, right? I don't want to be a lab rat for the first generation. I'm not getting paid to be a lab rat. I want to be a consumer, right? And so do you, I would have thought. So let us move on here and go for... AJ847.63, obviously a Star Trek fan, Captain's Log, AJ847.63. Why do Jags in the trailer of Ars have a higher price gap? A higher price gap. I don't even know what that is. For example, BMW M2 CSV versus Jag F-Type V8 in US and UK, there's a similar price, but here one is 150K and the other one is over 200 I really don't know. You'd have to ask them, but it might have something to do with the spec of the vehicles. We might have a higher spec or they might just be putting in the Australia tax. So cars are generally pretty damn expensive in Australia. So it seems to me hard to justify an even bigger price hike. But if you want to be suitably angry about the nature of performance cars and the Australia tax, just go to the Porsche International website and look at the price of a base model I hesitate to call it Poverty Pack 911 in the United Kingdom and have a look at exactly the same car here in Australia. And there is $100,000 difference in the price. Yes. Even though there's more what we would call GST and they would call VAT over there in Liz Regina stands. So there's that. Ingar Bratsis now says, John, I'm thinking of purchasing my first car and I cannot decide. I hate it when that jumps like that. Makes it very difficult to follow. Cannot decide between Mitsubishi ASX ES and Kia Seltos S. What would you recommend considering reliability, service and selling value? Ingar, I'd go the Seltos every time purely because it's about it's got to be eight years more modern than the ASX. ASX is just an aging platform. And it's like that time I managed to ask Chuck Yeager the question about which plane he enjoyed flying. And he, he became, he's the guy who broke the sound barrier, obviously. And he became an ace flying Mustangs in World War II, like piston engine Mustang fighter planes. And then he went on to fly all of these kooky aircraft like experimental f-105 thunder chiefs that uh, flew up to the edge of space in one of which he nearly died and all of this experimental stuff and i expected him to say the mustang right and he looked at me and he said son it's just like cars the the best plane is the most modern plane the best plane you'll ever fly is the most modern one and i kind of always took that away with me subsequently you know and i i think about it like that so Eight years is a long time in R&D, okay? So Seltos would have many more improvements built into it compared with the eight-ish, whatever it is, year-old ASX. Uh, there's nothing wrong with ASX. It's okay, you know, and they're about the same size. I'd just suggest that Seltos is more modern. So why would it not be better? There's no excuse for it not to be better. And when you look at its specs and things like that, then... Um, I think you could quite easily do that exercise and say, well, 
Seltos has got this and this and this and this and this. And it would also have a bunch of other things that are just better implemented. It would have the same features, but better implemented, like better implemented infotainment and things of that nature, just because of the fundamental... Excuse me, just because of the fundamental architecture. So there's that. Solo Traveller now says, Hi, John, I pulled the plug on a dealership who, as part of the negotiation, were going to fudge the figures and avoid paying the luxury car tax. What's your thoughts on this behaviour? It's pretty hard to dodge the luxury car tax, although I suppose they could fit accessories for example after the fact or give you a higher trade-in and sell you the car cheaper or things of that nature but it's dangerous to get involved in any scam as far as I can see when it comes to the the whole car industry thing I and the tax thing I mean do you really want the federal government going over you with a fine tooth comb I know I don't so I got this question here from Barry okay and it's it's rather long. This is just page one. <laughs> and I get this kind of thing rather a lot. And I have devoted a full video, which I will publish tomorrow morning, most probably, to an answer on that. But it's, I just wanted to preempt this and let you know that it's coming. This is the question about sealed for life automatic transmissions, which are not really sealed for life. And you can change the oil. And should you change them? And how often should you change the oil in your automatic transmission, particularly if you fit one of those acoustically transparent aluminium chitois, which they call um, caravans still, I think. If you fit one of those and it weighs three and a half tonnes and you drive across, I don't know, some long straight outback road past Broken Hill and it's 50 degrees and you're headed to Tibberborough where it's typically 55 in summer... Um, I'd call that pretty harsh in terms of the operating conditions for your automatic transmission. And if your transmission says sealed for life, I'd suggest that's bullshit. So what I want to do uh, and what I will do tomorrow in that report is I want to lay out the beer garden physics and engineering of how you decide on a rational basis to change the oil in your automatic transmission. Like what temperatures really matter and where would you get the data? And I've been playing around with this little baby here, and I'll move to this camera now because this camera's got autofocus, which is just a thing of beauty and a joy to behold when it works. It's called the Blue Driver, and it's an OBD2 uh, Bluetooth plug-in, basically. So you can see there that it's got the, the uh, port for the OBD2 plug there. It's got the plug for the OBD2 port, get it right. And you can just plug that into your OBD2 port. And the really cool thing about OBD2, of course, is that it's a communication standard, right? And what that means is there, there's the one set of data here and the blue driver can therefore decipher it, right? And then you can just download the free app for your uh, tablet, your smartphone. It's available for iOS and Android. And you can get a whole bunch of information about how your car is performing above and beyond what is actually shown to you on the dashboard. And one of these things would be things like the transmission operating temperature. And once you know that, you'll basically have a very strong idea of what's a good rational service interval for your car because the temperature really does affect the life of the oil in your transmission. And 
the only other way to do this is to like beard stroke it, you know, and talk to other beard strokers who go, it's 40,000 in every 18 months or 50,000 in two years or 60,000 in three years or I do it every year, mate. I do it myself in my shed, you know. There's no basis for that other than dudes talking in their shed. So what I've attempted to do in tomorrow's report is the research on exactly how temperature affects the longevity of your automatic transmission fluid and how you should approach that, how you procure the data to decide what the servicing interval should be and whether or not you should fit a transmission cooler, which is another, uh, like an aftermarket transmission cooler, which is another hotly debated topic. So uh, stand by for that tomorrow. If you are not subscribed to the channel and you feel like doing that, I'd, um, I'd appreciate it. Although, you know, you could always... Subscribe to Wheels Magazine, I suppose. They're crap, but they need you more than I do. So there's that. You could give them the sympathy altruistic subscription. <laughs> That'll get back. Let's get back to some of these chats now. We'll keep going for a little bit if that's okay with you. Uh, if you're sick of it, of course, you could just treat this like uh, talkback radio and you could just click away, right? You don't have to watch the whole thing. You don't even have to listen to all, the whole thing. But this is an opportunity for you to recuse yourself from your family and thereby they get the benefit of not having you inflict yourself upon them and you get the benefit of being in your own fat cave and just chilling out doing man stuff, which... The girls upstairs just, they never understand. Anyway, Dean Unpronounceable, although I will try now, Despotovsky, Despotovsky, one of those Eastern Bloc names, says, Hi, John, love your honesty. Who do you think is the next car maker who will exit the Australia? Is Australia headed to a 100% grey market? No, we're not headed to a 100% grey market, but I would suggest that Ford is uh, systematically vulnerable because of its dependency on Ranger. And if Ford shits the bed with the next Ranger and it turns into a disaster, they don't have enough volume in their other models to pick up the pieces. And that is a huge vulnerability that nobody else in the media would dare to say in a public forum, mainly because they're hooked on Ford's advertising and they would hate to have that upended. And Ford would certainly, I suspect, pull its ads on anybody who was stupid enough or brave enough, one of the two, maybe they're the same thing, to say uh, words to that effect. So Ford is vulnerable and Honda is really on its last legs as well because Honda is kind of desperation move to the agency model for selling cars in Australia in the future and that's up for grabs like is it going to work who knows right it might not work their product is spectacularly uh, uninnovative they haven't innovated for 12 years now they really haven't their mainstream stuff is just like yawn factor 15 it's out of control and that's a problem and I think Nissan is a little bit vulnerable as well just because their product lineup fails to engage or make sense like they've got two cars that are decent <laughs> there's the gtr which is kind of irrelevant but awesome and they got the patrol which they've announced they're going to kill or it's highly likely they're going to kill after this one so you know what are they left with after this the leaf i don't see that being the Jesus-like resurrection for Nissan. I, I just don't. I'm sorry. So, you know, they're three up in the pointy end of the market. And, of course, 
it's up for grabs for some of these little players as well. I think LDV is doing okay. And I think MG is doing okay. They're looking like they could be strong into the future. But Sanyong, Great Wall, not so much. So they could pull the pin with minimal disruption to the surface tension of the rest of the lake. And they could do that at any time, I'd suggest. So there's that. Now, uh, I also wanted to cover off one we'll do one more of these pre-selected questions as well will we this is kind of interesting as well from a dude whose parents had impeccable taste because they called their son john gotta love that a uh, a frequent but not common name so there's that john goes i'm after some advice on how to approach a complaint i'm sending to my local toyota servicing department after a recent service i noticed that my child's car seat was unbuckled at the seatbelt likely during the complimentary detailing service. Luckily, I noticed right away before putting my two-year-old son in an unrestrained car seat. And yeah, absolutely. Lucky that you noticed it. And the integrity of the restraints should be part of the check every time you fasten a child into one of those additional restraints. Like you clip them up in front, just look down and make sure the seatbelt hasn't been dislodged by person or persons unknown. However unwittingly, you know, mum or dad, the other party to this child might have unclipped the seat just to, I don't know, modify the load space to put something bulky in without the kid in the car and forgotten to couple it back up after carrying some heavy thing up, I don't know, four flights of stairs. This kind of thing can happen anytime. So making it a habit to check like that, big thumbs up. Uh, John goes on, says, I contacted Toyota by phone and spoke to the service manager who was apologetic and said she would pass the feedback on and that's about it. I'm also keen to email in a a formal written complaint, but I'm wondering whether I'm entitled to something other than a half-hearted apology. For instance, my other car is booked in for a service next week and they are charging me the full amount because apparently the cap price servicing didn't carry over from the previous owner. I thought to myself, really? You're going to charge me the full amount after nearly putting my family in danger? Is this just a case of no harm done and move on? I would expect they would at least try to keep some sort of integrity and good reputation with a customer. Like, hey, we stuffed up, your next service half priced or something. So here's what I'd say about that. You're not actually entitled to compensation for terrible events that don't occur, okay? And I'd further suggest that at least... As I look at it on the moral landscape, when you reduce danger to your two-year-old and appropriate compensation being a half-price service, you lose me, okay? Because what I'd be searching for here is an undertaking from the dealership to put a practice or a procedure in place where a second set of eyes checks this off like restraints refastened correctly. Okay, because I wouldn't want to see a child damaged by the same kind of oversight. Right. That's the resolution I'd look after. But maybe I'm just maybe I've got this wrong. And and of course, the service department could be genuinely apologetic and not half hearted about it. We're terribly sorry. We've spoken to the person who failed to reconnect the, uh, the, the child restraint and we've outlined to them the importance of double checking this kind of thing and we've put this procedure in place to make sure that our actions no longer place anyone at risk. And morally and ethically, that's the way you've got to do it. 
and also to comply with the Occupational Health and Safety Act in Australia, you have to make sure that your actions while at work don't endanger the safety of other employees and members of the public. So surely this kind of thing falls under that rubric as well, right? However, when you start going, well, what am I entitled to flowing on from this unfortunate event? you really do lose me. And I get a lot of this kind of thing. I had one guy, memorably, who uh, drove a long distance in some diesel van and the turbo shat itself, and uh, he wanted me to make representation of the car maker, right? And I basically asked him a few more questions, and I said, well, has it got a good service history? Have you serviced it on time? And he said, no, I'm a bit late with one of the services. And I kind of said, you know, how, how much late are you? And he kind of said, about nine months, <laughs> right? And I go, well... Dude, you've got not a leg to stand on here because the turbocharger has clearly failed because you haven't serviced your car. And nine months is a kind of a big deal when the service interval is like 12 months. So you're like 21 months without changing the oil. Come on. Anywho, he gets back to me and he goes, but I've got a disabled son. And I went, what the? Like, I know that having a disabled son must be tremendously challenging and emotionally draining and difficult, right? I, I, because having, having children who are uh, not disabled in any way, having completely healthy children is all of those things. So it can only be more difficult to have a child with special needs, right? But then I thought to use that as an excuse, right? That's lame. I really did... You know, just it's one of those events that I don't remember many of the complaints and many of the issues that come up that I intercede on behalf of people for, right? But I remember that one because it just seemed to me so spectacularly misaligned in some way. Uh, I'd love to know what you think about that sort of thing um, because I tend to call this stuff how I see it, right? Like the response that I give to you on this live stream is kind of the same as the response that I would give to the punter face to face, right? I'd be saying, and in fact, in the case of John, I did say exactly that to him by way of a return email earlier today. But this stuff about entitlement and you know, using using these uh, using these things like as an excuse, sort of, in a way that diminishes your fundamental ethical and moral uh, commitment to what's important. That that to me, that seems you know very misaligned in some way. But anyway, you could let me know in the comments or in the chat about how you feel about that. But. Um, I think that's roughly all we've got time for this evening. I've been going now for about an hour and a half. My voice is about to cark it. I am very pleased that you've been able to devote some or all of that time to the live stream this evening. Remember, it's every Thursday evening at 8.30pm Sydney time, and I will try to pop up live from time to time during the week to answer questions. And not unlike these ones that you've seen now, if you think they've got value, please let me know if you think there's anything else that I should cover off. You can reach me via the website or you can reach me in the comments to the videos I upload, probably four or five of them every week, the pre-recorded ones as well. So I'm fairly contactable in the context of other motoring journalists. And if I can help you out, I absolutely will. Although sometimes it does take me a little while to get back to people. So anyway, that's me signing off Thursday, the 5th of November. It's 9.32pm and I thank you very much for your company this evening.